So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Hi everyone, I'm Soki to be with us for today's Beach Talk. It's my desire to help us understand every word of God that's in the Word of God. God has amazing things to say to us every single day. We'll just take the time to read and to understand and listen. Uh, our objective is really simple. It's disciples making disciples to plant churches that plant churches. We want to multiply a grassroots effort everywhere we're at. Now, Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17 says, In the evening there were many who were demon-possessed, and he cast the spirits out with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. They brought to him many. Now, Jesus' care for the individual is shown by the implication that Jesus dealt with each person individually, not as some cold sort of assembly line procedure. <laughs> many who are demon-possessed, uh, one person pointed out that this gives two sound reasons why it happened in Judea in our Lord's time. It abounded with demoniacs. First, uh, is because they were there to advance the very the height of, of, of immorality. There was not a nation under heaven more wicked than they were. Now, secondly, because they were strongly addicted to magic, and so, as it were, they invited evil spirits to be familiar there. Sound familiar? <laughs> now, that it might be fulfilled what was said by Isaiah, and Matthew rightly understood this is a partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, which primarily refers to spiritual healing, but also deals with physical healing. Now, in Matthew, Jesus showed us delivering people from the bondage of sin and the effects of a fallen world. Now, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The provision for our healing, both physically and spiritually, was made by the sufferings of Jesus, the stripes of Jesus. The physical dimension of our healing is partially realized now, but only finally in the resurrection. Now, the healing work of, our, of Jesus cost something. It wasn't as if he had a magic bag of healing power that he drew out and he just kind of casted it out to the needy. No, this cost him agony. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This section of Matthew's gospel shows four different people being healed, each one different from the other. Now, different people were healed. A Jew with no social or religious privileges a Gentile officer of the army occupying and oppressing Israel, a woman related to one of Jesus' devoted followers, and then unnamed multitudes. Now, their requests were made in different ways. A direct request from the sufferer made in his own faith, a request from one man or another made on the in, um, faith on the behalf of someone. No request was made because Jesus came to the sufferer. There was no evidence. And then there were sufferers that were brought to Jesus with different kinds of faith. <clears throat> so we see all sorts of different methods and reasons for Jesus healing people.
Now, Jesus used a word from afar. He used a tender touch. He used a variety of unnamed methods. In one story, he spit on the ground. Uh, now, from all of this, we can understand that physical healing is an area where God especially shows his sovereignty. And he does things as he pleases, not necessarily as we want. Now, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's happening here? Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Jesus increased in popularity, yet he did not follow the crowds or even seek to make them bigger. <laughs> it's much different today, isn't it? <laughs> he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. With the miracles associated with the ministry of Jesus, following him might have seemed more glamorous than it really was. Jesus perhaps received many spontaneous offers like this. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't tell the man, no, you can't follow me, but he told him the truth without painting a glamorized version of what it was like to follow him. This is the opposite of techniques used by many people today. <laughs> but Jesus wanted everyone to know what it would really be like to follow him. In the immediate context of Jesus' ministry, the saying does not mean that Jesus was penniless, but homeless. The nature of this mission kept him on the move and would keep his followers on the move. D.A. Carson. The reason this man turned away from Jesus was because Jesus lived a very simple life by faith, trusting that God would meet every need without reserves for, of material resources. This is just the kind of thing that would have made Jesus attractive to a truly spiritual person. Think about it. People said, I should follow him and learn from him. Jesus looked for sincerity. The Son of Man, the phrase the Son of Man is used 81 times in the Gospels, the stories of the life of Jesus. Every time it is either something Jesus said of himself or the words of someone quoting Jesus. It's an important phrase. He used it to describe himself and he used it as a title that reflected both the glory of God and the humanity of Jesus. <clears throat> now, especially its connection to the Daniel passage means that it was an image of power and glory, yet without the unwanted associations of other titles. By using it often, Jesus told his listeners, I'm the Messiah of power and glory, but not the one that you thought was going to come. <laughs> now, verse 21 and 22 says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What does this mean? Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Actually, this man did not ask for permission to dig a grave for his deceased father. He wanted to remain in his father's house and care for him until his father died. This was obviously an indefinite period, which could drag on and on. This man was another of his disciples, yet he did not follow Jesus as he should have, nor as, the nor as the 12 disciples did. This shows us that the term disciples has a somewhat broad meaning in the Gospel of Matthew and must be understood in its context. The man wanted to follow Jesus, 
but n but just not yet. He knew it was good and that he should do it, but he felt there was a good reason why he couldn't do it right now. Sound familiar? <laughs> follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus pressed the man to follow him and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must be put ahead, must not be put ahead of following Jesus. Jesus comes first. Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. Now, unlike a lot of people today, he was interested more in quality than in quantity. <laughs> Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little tiny profession and then go talk about the experience. In addition, in addition Jesus was merely being honest. This is what it meant to follow him. And he wanted people to know that at the beginning when he was talking about it. Now, verse 23 and 25, it says, Now, when he got on a boat, his disciples followed him, and then suddenly a great storm arose on the sea so that the boat uh, covered the waves. But he was asleep, then his disciples came to him, and they woke up, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Now, when he got into the boat, now the village of Capernaum was right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, like the ocean behind me, and many Galileans were familiar with boats and life near the water. Uh, now suddenly a great storm arose on the sea. Now the Sea of Galilee is well known for its sudden violent storms. The severity of the storm was evident by the fact that the disciples, many of whom were experienced fishermen on the lake were terrified, crying out, Lord save us, we're perishing. Now the boat, it says the boat was covered with waves. There was high surf. The waves were rising high above the boat, breaking on it, gradually filling filling the boat with water. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is asleep. Now, the disciples were desperate. Jesus was asleep. It must have seemed strange to them that he could sleep in the middle of their storm. F.A. Bruce says that the grammar of the phrase, but he was asleep, conveys a dramatic contrast. The storm raged. The disciples were panicking. Jesus is sleeping. Now, we're impressed by the fact that he needed a sleep, showing his true humanity. He became tired and would sometimes need to catch up on sleep whenever he was able to, even in unlikely places. It was the sleep that one worn by an intense light involving almost constant strain on the body. Now, we're impressed by the fact that he could sleep. His mind and his heart were peaceful, trusting in the love and care of God, even in the middle of a storm. Now, verses... 26 and 27 but he said to them why are you fearful O you of little faith then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm like it is right behind me right now he says who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him now why are you fearful you of little faith Jesus rebuked their fear and unbelief not their request or waking him we shouldn't think that Jesus was in a bad mood that they that he got awoke he was upset at their fear, their fear and unbelief, because those always go together. Jesus is trying to calm them. Charles Spurgeon said, he spoke to the men first, for they were the most difficult to deal with. The wind and the sea he dealt with afterwards. <laughs> now, they actually had many reasons to have faith, even great faith. They'd just seen Jesus do significant miracles with power and authority. They had seen an example of 
great faith from the centurion who trusted Jesus to heal his servant. They had seen Jesus with them in the boat, and they saw Jesus asleep. His peace was everywhere. Then he arose and rebuked the winds from the sea. Jesus didn't merely quiet the wind and the sea, he rebuked it. This together with the disciples' fear uh, and what Jesus would encounter at this destination leads some to believe that there was some type of maybe spiritual attack in the storm. Adam Clark points out that this was probably excited by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, who, have, who having got the author and the preachers all together, tried to snuff them out, tried to get them to drown and defeat the purposes of God. And thus, to prevent the salvation of a ruined world, Jesus took this opportunity to rebuke this spiritual attack. Now, so the men marveled, the disciples were amazed. Such a powerful display over creation led them to ask, who can this be? It can only be the Lord, Jehovah, who only has this power and authority. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When the waves rise, you calm them down. Now, in the span of a few moments, the disciples saw both the complete humanity of Jesus, he was sleeping, and the fullness of his deity. They saw Jesus for who he truly was, truly man and truly God. Now, verses 28 and 29, when he had come to the other side of the country of the uh, Gergesenes, they met two demon-possessed men coming in from the tombs. They were fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, what will, you have, what will you have to do with us, Jesus? You're the Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now, what is happening here? Now, the other gospel accounts mention only one of these men. This must, this must be because there was one that was far more severe in the state of demon possession, having many demons. Now, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, these two un unfortunate guys were unclean because of their direct contact with the dead, and they displayed fierce, uncontrollable behavior. The demons drove these men to live among the tombs because graveyards and the dead were terribly unclean and offensive to the Jewish people because demons loved death because it was no proper place for men to live in because it made men more frightening to others because it encouraged superstition in others, fearing that men would actually possess with the spirits of the dead in the graveyard. A lot going on here. Now, what we have to do with you, the demons uh, tormenting these poor men wanted to be left alone. They saw Jesus for who he was. They didn't want anything to do with them. So they tried to manipulate the situation by talking. Now, the demons knew who Jesus was, even if the disciples didn't. We can contrast the two statements. Who can this be? Jesus, you are the Son of God. <laughs> Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, these demons also knew of both their immediate destiny to be cast out and their ultimate destiny, which was to suffer everlasting torment. They wanted the freedom to do as much damage as they could before their time, their, their uh, destiny of torment. They also understood that they had limited time and therefore worked as hard as they could up until they could not work anymore. This is one of the few 
admirable things that we can say <laughs> about Satan's demons. <laughs> Verses 30 through 32. Now, a good way for a good way off from them was was a some swine. And he said, if you cast us out, permit, permit us to go into these herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of pigs. And suddenly the whole herd ran violently down the steep place into the ocean and perished in the water. What's going on here? There was a herd of many pigs, both Jews and Gentiles, populated the region of Galilee. So this may have been um, a herd of pigs owned by Gentiles. But most commentators believe that since the pigs were unclean for Jews, they should not have been there, even if a Gentile man owned them. Now, if you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine, the demons wanted to enter the swine because these evil spirits are bent on destruction and hate to be idle. Now, when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. The whole herd of swine ran violently and perished in the water. Now, there was nothing really comparable to this in the Bible. The casting of demons from a human into animals, yet Jesus had a good reason to allow this. The fact that the demons immediately drove the swine to destruction helps explain why Jesus allowed the demons to enter the pigs because he wanted everyone to know what the real intention of these demons was. They wanted to destroy the men just as they destroyed the pigs. Because men are made in the image of God, they could not have their way as easily with the men, but their intention was just the same, to kill and destroy. Jesus is trying to teach us. Another reason why the devils uh, were sent into the pigs was, was to conclusively show that they had been indeed cast out of the men. Total example. Now, verses 33 through 34, then those who kept with them fled, and they went into the city and told everything that, they, that had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, he told them everything. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. Now, since Jesus knew human nature, he knew what to expect from the crowd coming from the city. Yet his disciples probably thought that these people would be pleased that Jesus had delivered these formerly demon-possessed men. No. <laughs> the work of Jesus had unified the whole city, and they had all come out to meet with and to talk to Jesus, but it was not in a good way. <laughs> they begged him to depart from their region. We would think that the people of the region would be happy that these two demon-possessed men had been delivered. Perhaps they were more interested in pigs than in people, <laughs> their flocks. <laughs> Certainly the delivering power of Jesus did not make all the people feel comfortable. This may explain another reason why the demons wanted to enter the pigs. The idea is that the demons wanted to stir up hatred and rejection of Jesus, so they drove the pigs to destruction, hoping that it would be blamed on Jesus and that he would be unwelcome. Now, this wraps up our time together, looking at the second part of Matthew chapter 8. I always like to take a time at the end of my talks to pray together. Prayer is just talking to God. Maybe you need a fresh start in your life. You can always say to God, God, would you give me a fresh start? Maybe you've been doing some things in your life that you wish you shouldn't. Maybe you want God to turn your life around. Why don't we go ahead and pray together? It's 
prayer is simple. It's just saying, hey, God, would you give me a fresh start? Would you come into my life and help me to follow you? In Jesus' name, and as always. Thank you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's going to take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you could go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We'd love that. Thanks so much.